For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to another riveting episode of Your Case is on Hold. We're glad to have you back here today for our 28th episode of Your Cases on Hold. This is the February 15th edition of JBJS. I'm Antonia Chen. I am deputy editor of Adult Reconstruction, the best subspecialty still in orthopedics. And I have here... Your Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor for methodology. I'm the dude or his dudeness if you're not into the whole brevity thing, man. I wish you guys were actually seeing this on video because there is a crown in front of me looking at Dr. Schoenfeld and it is magical. <laughs> so Have you ever met the chief of police of Malibu? He's a real reactionary. <laughs> I need to work on that, apparently. <laughs> so the opinions are our own and they do not reflect JBJS, JBJS editorial board or anyone at JBJS. This one is sponsored you to by something that's- Or the chief of Malibu. Or the Chief of Malibu. Yes, you can stand back, Chief of Malibu. We are having our own opinions here. So we're at JBJS talking about the gold standard in video. So if you haven't checked it out yet, it's coming soon to a website near you. JBJS is releasing all these wonderful videos on orthopedic techniques, author insights, and video summaries. The bonus features include suggested videos and personal playlists. JBJS now delivers the highest quality video content in one location with a robust search engine that makes it fast and easy to find what you need. And even things you didn't even know you need, you wanted. So search by subspecialty, anatomy, or procedures. And if your case is on hold, guess what? Watching that video is going to make the time fly by. So it's definitely worth it. After you listen to the our podcast, though. True, true. Listen to us first, then check out. (laughs) So go with the priorities there. So looking at this episode, we're going to the top of the pile. The reporting of race and ethnicity in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery by Okiki. It's permanently free. And it's something I encourage all authors. We've talked on this and a few other topics as well, too, is when you're reporting your studies, be sure to report race and ethnicity, which is not traditionally looked at, but should be incorporated in all of our studies. What's new in pediatric orthopedics? By Andres et al., also permanently free. There's three evidence-based orthopedic articles, Roses and Lilies by you, also permanently free. The History of Discriminatory Jewish Quotas in American Medical Education and Orthopedic Training by Solaz et al. Very interesting to look at the history of our um, uh, Jewish compatriots in the medical education system, as well as in orthopedic training. An obituary for G. Paul DeRosa. He lived from 1939 to 2022. This is also permanently free. So without further ado, we're going to go to our headlines. And our dude is going to take it off. Yeah, you mix a mean Caucasian, Jackie. In other quotes from the Big Lebowski, 
Uh, so, uh, yes, my headline is post-maturity progression in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis curves of 40 to 50 degrees by you and colleagues. This is 30 days free, so please do check it out. Um, this is a common clinical situation that presents itself in patients that I see quite regularly. Uh, I don't treat <clears throat> pediatric patients, but in adult patients, even just sort of outside the pediatric window with a history of scoliosis, they will present in the office for further surveillance or follow-up. They know they have this history. They were either just you know diagnosed with it or actually treated for it uh, as an adolescent. And, and everyone always asks, invariably it comes up, even in patients who are several decades beyond the, the pediatric window, it comes up about risks of progression. So this is a very difficult population around which to develop high quality scientific data because to study the population effectively, you're going to have to have a large population size with sustained surveillance where you're seeing people at scheduled time points, say every year, year in, year out, they're coming in, they're getting a standing scoliosis series, and you're just sort of collecting the data in that very systematic way. And then doing it over decades and decades and decades. I, I was actually thinking about this conceptually when I was reading the paper. And it's it's like to, to actually do this, you'd need to like start with like a certain set of physicians and then you, they would invariably retire and you would have to have like their partners pick it up for them to keep following these individuals. And then you have to have the forbearance of the actual individuals to continue to come into the office year in and year out and have these x-rays done, it would it would really be quite an, an undertaking. And, and that isn't what was done here, point of fact. Uh, you know, they, they tried to describe the natural history of curves in the 40 to 50 degree range following skeletal maturity, and they're just using 73 skeletally mature patients stratified by progression which was greater than five degree increase or no progression and whether this progression occurred early, standard, or, or at an accelerated rate. And the average period of post-maturity follow-up was 11.8 years. About 62% of the patients exhibited at least some type of progression. And uh, it's about four patients with progression. And they engage in, in a variety of, of statistical testing, uh, including receiver operator curve characteristics plotted to determine variables with significant differences between the groups. And there, there's some issue of power because, again, you only have 45 patients with progression. There's some issues around over-optimistic modeling and the number of patients that you have with the outcome of interest is really going to inform not only the restricted clinical variation, but then also inherently how many variables you can realistically test for. And, and we see, you know, the area under the curve has a value of 0.72, which is realistically not, not that high. So, you know, they say the average rate of progression was slow. However, again, 62% of the population did have at least some progression. And they wager that the gold standard yearly observation remains reasonable management. Apical wedging and coronal imbalance, they identified these as being suited for closer monitoring. Once again, the, the models themselves are realistically over-optimistic with just the 45 patients that have progression. And um, this is a very interesting study. It, it provides some putative data around a clinically relevant and salient question, uh, one that comes up quite regularly. This is probably best available evidence at this time. but at the same time, it, it really isn't that high quality evidence. 
they got a rating of level three. I would say, you know, given the material issues, this is realistically level four. And again, you know, it's 11.8 years of uh, average post-maturity follow-up. That really, you know, sounds like when you say it, it's like, wow, that, that's quite a bit of time. It's over a decade. But we're really only talking about these individuals getting to be like 27, 28 years old. What about at 38, 48, 58? Um, so these are all points to consider. They they emphasize the 73 patients and they call it a strength, um, saying that the overall size of the sample was a was a strength. It's really not that many patients, point of fact. And, and the 73 is, is really subordinate to the 45 patients that have the progression because that's the outcome of interest. So it's really just 45 patients that you're talking about. So as a method editor, question for you is how would you calculate a sample size in this patient population if you're doing the study and trying to hit a certain number of patients, knowing that not all patients with you know adolescent idiopathic scoliosis uh, will fit into this curve range? Well, I mean, you know, you can use this, the estimate to, you know, you can estimate that whatever population that you have in this range, you're going to have about a 62% rate of progression. And then if you're talking about prognostic modeling, it's a great question that you pose um, and gets me into another point that, that I wanted to uh, raise, which is, you know, the you can have very permissive models or you can have very conservative models. And really, once again, we're talking about trying to model in an epistemological way the, the actual reality. So you want as many patients as you can possibly get your hands on. But certainly, if you're talking about recruiting patients and you're estimating 62%, it's how many variables do you want to control for? And as a public service announcement to our uh, colleagues who are interested in writing and, and conducting research, you'll see a lot of um, unusual language around these kinds of things. They they use terms like they'll, they'll refer to rules of thumb, which like that's not even like, I mean, that that is what you will see written in the paper or in the justification and the author response. Just don't use the term rules of thumb anymore. Um, you uh, or you'll you'll see like you know the 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 proven approach allows for ten outcomes per variable considered or twenty outcomes per variable considered. Twenty is kind of the gold standard that we expect at JBJS. But if you can do thirty, that's going to be better. If you can do forty, that's going to be better. So you always want as many patients as you can. If you're for each variable you want to include, and realistically, you should also account for the intercept. You need 20 patients with the outcome of interest if it's a categorical outcome. And if the outcome is continuous, then it's just for every 20 patients that you can accrue. So, you know, again, you can go at, well, we're assuming that 62% of patients are going to have progression in whatever sample we're going to collect. So if, if, if you're collecting, you know, 1,000 patients, then you have 620. And then you can include many, many variables. Perfect. Perfect for design. I like the sound of it. Go with a thousand. So is the case on hold or not? I mean, they're not really saying anything that, that you know, they're not taking a stance that I would say, oh, something here needs to be go to go on hold. I think that the parts that are probably actually holding are the apical wedging and coronal imbalance because of their their modeling and the way they approached it. That may just be, you know, restricted to the the sample that's under consideration. So that's the part that I would put on hold, the, the second sentence in the conclusions. But everything else is it's it's a retrospective clinical epidemiology. There's this is their experience. And it can be useful if you feel that this population is representative of your population. 
And it is best available evidence, as I mentioned, as far as I'm aware. So it's something that you can say, look, you know, with the caveats that this is a retrospective review, et cetera, et cetera, this is what we know about this. And I think that that's fine to share that with, with your patients. Perfect. Sounds good. All right. I'm going to take it to the next one. So moving to something very different is short-term indwelling Foley catheters do not reduce the risk of post-operative urinary retention in uncomplicated primary total hip and total knee arthroplasty, a randomized controlled trial by Juan Tribe et al. There's also a visual summary on here. So if you don't like listening to us, if you don't like reading things or something visual that you can look at. So we'll give you all different options here. So I'm going to use acronyms here because it's a lot easier, but post-operative urinary retention, also known as POR, is still a problem in total joint orthoplasty patients despite shorter surgery duration, appropriate hydration, quicker mobilizations. And some previous studies actually demonstrated no difference in POR when spinal anesthesia is used, while other studies have demonstrated increased straight cats after surgery in those who didn't receive Foley's. So this was a study that looked at patients who received a very short course of a Foley. Basically, these patients went into the operating room after they were put asleep with a spinal anesthesia, they received a Foley, and then once they went up to the floor, about two or three hours afterwards, they had their Foley removed. So short Foley duration was able to empty their bladder, and they looked at poor afterwards. So each patient received preoperative urinalysis, which is interesting. They didn't actually go into depth as to what they um, actually found from those results. Um, but they did say anyone who had a post-operative UTI didn't have a positive UA prior to surgery. And all patients received spinal anesthesia in this cohort of patients. Now, the nice thing about this study is it does give a good algorithm for treating patients with potential poor. So patients were monitored for you know over 30 milliliters per hour within four hours. They couldn't do so. A bladder scan was performed. So if you're looking at your own practice, there's some practical information here. If they have a volume over 450, you could undergo a straight cath. And they were monitored at bladder scans. They did at pretty frequent intervals, two to four hour intervals. And they received additional straight caths as necessary. And then urology was consulted after a third straight cath was required. And neither did we get a you know, indwelling urinary catheter or intermittent straight catheterization at that point of time, depending on what urology said. So it does give an algorithm for taking care of patients in the post-operative period, if that's something that you're looking for in your own practice. So the primary outcome was poor, and the way they defined it as requiring two straight, greater than or equal to two straight caths or placement of an indwelling urinary catheter postoperatively. And the secondary outcome was at least one straight cath. So they did a sample size calculation, and they based it on a minimally clinically important difference poor rate of 7%. And that's how they got their patient cohort. They allowed for a 10% dropout, and they had an appropriate amount in those who did and did not receive the Foley catheters. So in the patients, they found a total of 9 or 2.3% of the patients developed poor, and there was no difference in poor rates between those who received a Foley versus who did not get catheters. And interestingly, and, and good to for the authors, good job for the authors, they looked at the rate of poor, but also differences in poor because they looked at 7%. That's how they powered their study for MCID. And they actually looked at that too and reported and found no differences. Um, females had less poor than males. Sorry, guys. And then the length of stay was different. So those with poor, patients who had poor had two full days um, versus the length of stay of 1.6 days. And that's actually clinically relevant. That's, you know, leaving on two full days afterwards for potentially leaving in one day or one and a half days from surgery itself can actually be a big difference. Although the conclusion says there's no real difference if you do get a Foley or not get a Foley, the urinalysis positive UTI was as treated analysis. So those who are treated, not intention to treat, but as treated analysis, those who received a Foley catheter for those patients or 
2.1% of the patients had a urinalysis positive UTI versus those who didn't receive a catheter had zero UTIs. So while it's not statistically different, that's actually, I think, clinically significant in that Foley's aren't benign. You're introducing bacteria potentially into the tract. Now, these are urinalysis positive UTIs. I'm going to talk about culture positive UTIs in just a second. But no patients with a postoperative UTI received straight catheterization. So it means the contamination was actually from the time of placing the Foley as opposed to some sort of contamination afterwards. So the Foley insertion itself, even though short duration, did lead to an increased risk of urinalysis positive UTIs by as-treated analysis. There were only two culture positive UTIs, and both of them were from the Foley group. Neither of them were from the other group. On the other hand, if you're looking at complications, they include all these different complications, including PJI. So those who received the catheter, then the no catheter group, three of them developed PJI versus those who had the catheter, zero of them developed a PJI. Now, I don't imagine that being causative or correlative. It's just a reporting factor. It was not statistically significant either, but that was something that they noted that those who received the catheter didn't have any PJI. So I kind of discount that one. Um, and let my well, let, me, let me just wriggle yeah. me this, Batman. So if we just never put a catheter in anybody, will we have eliminated PJI from the face of the earth? Have we found the answer? The Holy, Holy Grail. Grail, right? So <laughs> if it's zero percent, then we have found the answer to eliminating PJI. You just don't use a catheter, right? Oh no, you use a catheter. It's even worse. <laughs> you, the full, it's weird. It's the all the patients who develop PJI requiring revision surgery were in the no catheter. Group. Oh yeah, no catheter group. It's, right. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Don't put right. catheter. Wait, no. But if you put a catheter in, you don't get a PJI. <laughs> it was uh, counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is counterintuitive. <laughs> and at the end of the day, the modeling, it, it's just the sample size is not large enough. If any, in any study, if the event is zero and you know that the event occurs or is, you know, stochastic in some way, as PJIs often are, you can do everything right and the patient can still have a PJI. Exactly. That's so, so it is what it is, right? I just want to point rate is zero percent for this population. It's just that in, in the you know, 228 total knees and 160 total hips in the group that got the 194 patients, you know, it just wasn't large enough to to actually have a PJI right. occur. And to be perfectly honest, these complications that they have reported after surgery, while nice, are probably not as relevant to any of the second primary or secondary outcomes. And that includes the HCAP scores too. Well, HCAP scores are nice to have, it doesn't actually change the outcome of whether or not you got a Foley for two or three hours versus not get a Foley for two or three hours. So those are just kind of additional information that probably didn't answer the question at hand. The poor is what matters or the straight cats afterwards is what matters. Well, and here's the other point. You know, the, the first thing is that any of the outcomes for which the study was not powered for, what they, they said was the power analysis is based on a 7% minimally clinically important difference in the poor rates. So that's all. That's the only thing that you can Period. do. Here. That's <laughs> but it's designed for 7% difference in rates. True. But the actual rate overall in the cohort was 2.3%. Right. So when you're designing it for a difference in rates, that's more than double the actual rate. Does that put the case on hold? And, yeah, the whole thing is, it's just, the, the but one thing, you know, I could put this on hold, but I will say that there was a journal of arthroplasty study on this very topic that was selected for web-based longitudinal assessment. So ignore at your own, 
you know, I think two cycles back or something like that, or it may, it may still be there. Um, but uh, ignore at your own risk. <laughs> but, but I think that, you know, there's, there are definitely some issues at hand with the work overall. Agreed. That said, it is telling you that fully catheters probably are not still necessary. So I'd say we still keep avoiding them in the context of primary total knee and total hip arthroplasty. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely the a, a takeaway message that can be inferred from here, which is, you know, Foley's are bad. You don't want to use them if you can avoid them. And there's not a compelling case to actually have them. Period. In this, in this particular patient population. Exactly. I completely agree. So I'm excited that our your case on hold one is a total joint arthroplasty one. Next one is on demographic and socioeconomic determinants are associated with poor preoperative patient reported pain and function at primary total arthroplasty, a cohort study of 14,079 patients by Vega et al. And there's also an infographic about this, so you can go check that out. So pre-accident report outcomes is something that we use regularly uh, in the context of before surgery and after surgery now, right? And it's being incentivized by some insurance companies to at least collect them, not necessarily do anything with the data per se. Uh, one of these things where I say here is that this is a study that evaluates preoperative problems and see how they correlate with pain and function. It would actually have been really nice to see this study, not just preoperative, but also postoperative problems in the same patient cohort populations to see how they did, including both pain and function evaluation, and see how they did in the pain and function evaluation after surgery as well. One thing they did emphasize is the fact that they did combine pain and function, both in one PROMS subset. So this is using the COOS, and they looked at pain and functional scores subset, and they combine them together into cohorts of different patients. So it's a large collection of patients, so that's nice to see, over 14,000 patients. And again, they looked at the pain and physical function ones, and they separated them into four different quartiles. They had the lowest quartile, 25, 50, 75, 100% quartiles that had separated them in. And they determined that there were four phenotypes um, based on pain and function. So you can kind of look in one of those like kite square diagrams where you have the four different quadrants where you have low pain, sorry, low pain or uh, a higher score and uh, low function. Um, you can have high pain, high function, and then all the different combinations of it. And they found that in the group, the number one group or the largest group was patients who had below the median for both pain and function. So greater pain and less function, which is not surprising. And note, all of these patients underwent primary total neoarthroplasty. So none of these patients didn't receive surgery. All of these patients underwent operative management. These are not non-operative cohort, this is operative cohort. So above or equal to the mean for both pain and function scores was a second group. Um, and this was, they call it the P plus and the PS plus. And these patients, when compared to the group um, so, these, so these patients were above the mean for both pain and function scores. So they were doing pretty well, actually. They were older. They were more likely to be male. They had lower BMI, had more education, had a lower Charleston comorbidity index, and were less likely to be Black or other race, be a current smoker, which is interesting, and have commercial insurance compared to the group that had was, was called PS negative, uh, negative, which is the first group, which was bad pain, bad function. So that's kind of, I like to use it as bad pain back function. This is the group that had less pain and better function. 
So that that was a category of separating them out. The third group or the third group with the most number of patients was below the median for pain, but above or equal to the mean for function. And the group that was smallest was above or equal to the mean for pain. So they had less pain, but they had worse function. They were the smallest group. So looking at the, they kind of separated into these categories of people, and they also separated it into quartiles of pain and function. So even though they said they interpreted pain and function together, they actually did separate them. So people who had worse pain were younger age, obesity, non-white race, female sex, current or recent smoking, non-commercial insurance, and higher Charleston comorbidity index. But worse function, this is again the 20th, 25th percentile, all of them were the same, except they had less education in the worst function group. So they kind of tied these all up and said, there are all these different demographic variables. And their conclusion was, such a pattern may indicate barriers to total knee arthroplasty access among certain patient demographics. But note that this study was all primary total knee arthroplasty elective patients. They all still received primary total knee patients. Certainly, you know, they got the surgery. So there, these characteristics weren't a barrier to them receiving the care. Now, what would be interesting is to see is take these patient report outcomes preoperatively and see how they do postoperatively, because that is what some studies have said is that, look, if a patient reported outcome is not, quote, bad enough, will they do well after surgery? And will people be limited to receive surgery such as total knee arthroplasty in the future if they don't have a patient reported outcome that is, quote, bad enough? But this study doesn't actually do that. It doesn't create a barrier to care every patient received a total arthroplasty, it's just highlighting some of the preoperative characteristics of patients who have either poor function or better function or you know, more pain or less pain. So the first thing that I would like to point out is that this study was done among patients who were treated in one of the nine sites in the Cleveland Clinic system. So and that includes uh, in Ohio proper and then also the satellite um, in Florida. So there, there may be both cluster bias as well as what we would call in quotes cultural issues around selection and indication. I think some of that is what you were getting at. And it's important to note that they are defining their groups based on cohort medians, cohort medians. So it's not the patient acceptable symptom state or the minimally clinically important state that they're cutting off of. So it becomes a tautology in that if you just take a population and you say just based on the characteristics of this population, it could be the, the 90th percentile. This could be the absolute, but you know, you're still going to have people who have above and below, right? There's going to be a distribution. It's not necessarily the entire distribution for, for this clinical issue. So that right there is a concern for me. What's also a concern is that they set these at the medians, but then the two um P minus, PS minus, and P plus, PS plus are about 78%, close to 80% of the whole cohort. So then you have the other two that are very, very, very small. So clearly when 78% of the cohort is in these two categories, that's going to be driving a lot of the, the, the findings. Then they go into, we're going to use a regression analysis to look at the characteristics associated with these, you know, essentially phenotypes that they've developed. And uh, last time when that happened in the last episode, I had visions of Uncle Roger. This time it was Brant and the dude in the Big Lebowski. Obviously, I have that on my mind where Brant is like, dude, he's giving him the money to like ransom Bunny. 
Lebowski. And he's like, dude, her life is in your hands. And the dude is like, no, no, don't, don't say that. And he's like, no, her life is in your hands, dude. Her life is in your hands. And he's no, don't, don't say that. It's just like, no, don't go into a, it just turns into a risk factors for X and condition slash surgery Y trope. And they do multiple comparisons without correction. And this is already a confounded by indication selection bias. So these results are in the Cleveland Clinic system, patients who have these constructed parameters around the Cleveland Clinic's cohort of patients based on their medians, what what they look like. I don't know that this is informative for people outside of the, the Cleveland Clinic system. And then the conclusion is that the patterns may indicate barriers to total knee access among this patient population leading to advanced levels of impairment. What? I mean, that's a total correlation does not equal causation. It's a category error. In, it's like a logic error. Agreed. I, I don't understand that statement. <laughs> and to quote uh, Young Gravy, make it weird, go. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it goes without saying I'm putting this case on hold. On hold. Brant and the dude put this case on hold. Her life is in your hands and the case was now on hold. Case is on hold. But do you know what's not on hold? Our honorable mentions. Ready oh, for honorable mentions? These, these ones are green go for sure. Good for go in oxidation and retrieved, never irradiated, ultra high molecular weight polyethylene bearings. What can we learn about in vivo oxidation by Courier et al.? And there's a commentary on that as well. Effect of fibular allograft augmentation in medial column comminuted proximal humeral fractures, a randomized controlled trial by Wang et al. Infographic is there too, and it's permanently free. And the markup on orthopedic services, an analysis of the 2014 to 2019 Medicare data and the potential for a surprise billing, surprise, by Burkhart et al. Thanks for tuning in. Always loving the Big Lebowski references. And when we're done here, we can uh, get something at the In-N-Out Burger. Speaking my right language. <laughs> Till next time. Well, wait. Uh, yeah, next time. Make sure that you uh, come see us next time at the JBJS booth at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons because we'll both be there and we can talk about Big Lebowski or about your cases that have been put on hold or whatever else it is that you want to talk about. We'll have a good time. Looking forward to it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.